This week's message is called Moses' Trouble, and that might cause you trouble because you think we fixed Moses' trouble last week. How could Moses still be having trouble, and why are we still talking about it? Well, this is a different kind of trouble. There's a different meaning to this, a double meaning, I should say, because Moses does have troubles. We have explored them. That's true. Some, some are his own human challenges that he, ha, we have learned from. But the truth is Moses' troubles are really honestly caused by the people that he leads. Uh, now, we can't completely deflect the blame, but the people cause Moses' trouble, which then causes him personal trouble. Now, isn't that life, though? Anyone ever be troubled by another human being? Well, I wanted to call this Moses' triumph, but we'll see here there's still a little bit of trouble. He does triumph in a big way, but yet again, here we get to observe the most humble man of all time. You know he is that, right? He, he said he was. We get to see him learning some lessons in leadership and psychology and submission to God. And it all centers on his trouble. But this might be the biggest trouble Moses has faced yet because this trouble has a name. Korach. You know the name? It's this week's Torah portion. Korach. <clears throat> and, you know... It's not really for the nation as a whole, but for Moses as a man, this is a big trouble. In the end, Moshe Rabbeinu, our teacher, will indeed teach us some lessons, which are actually just as applicable today as they were 3,500 years ago in the desert, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. The timing. I want to clarify something. I told you last week that some opinions suggest that Korach, this incident with Korach, which I hope you read the Torah portion, but if you didn't, I'll, I'll make some sense of it for you along the way. But some opinions suggest that Korach happened before the spies, okay, that it was the grumblers, Korach, and then the spies. Well, really, honestly, the majority, I think most opinions have it the other way, which is, which is more logical, that, that there was the grumblers and then there was the spies and now Korach and his group come along as a result of that, that Moses was blamed for the failure of the spies. He was deemed unable to lead. So some of the leaders then led a revolt against him. They stood up and said, you, you can't do this, which there are some indications in the text that this did happen after the spies. So big surprise there are some conflicting opinions about the interpretation of what, when, and what happened in the Bible in Jewish literature. Can you believe that? It happens occasionally. But there are some further clarifications that I want to make. Korach, the Parsha, starts in Numbers 16, and Korach kicks off the challenge to Moses. But there are actually three challenges that are happening to Moses from three different groups. Do you know who they are? There's Korach, number one. Korach, son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, along with, along with Datan and Abiram, that's the second group, sons of Eliab and own son of Peleth of Reuben, took 250 Israelite men, leaders of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they confronted Moses. So Moses is getting nailed. 
Moses is getting hit from Korach, he's getting hit from Datan and Abiram, and 250 well-respected men in the community all come to Moses and say, dude, not going well. Each had their own dispute, actually. It's not quite as cut and dried. We're not going to go into their own disputes because it's its own sermon. But let me summarize this teaching. I hate the word sermon, teaching. Each accusation has within it this really important thing. Three groups, three accusations. Each one contains within it the appearance of truth. The appearance of truth. And they start with this. All of the community is holy, they're saying to Moses, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's people? You, yourselves, Moses and Aaron. Because here's the nugget of truth. God has said that Israel is holy. He has described them as a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And God had indeed spoken to the entire nation at Mount Sinai, and the entire nation had said, we'll do it. We're coming into the covenant with you. So, you know, the, the, that, that nugget here of knowledge, this is really important. If you want to lie very, very well, make sure that it's built on some truth. Because here's the deal from, uh, I love these two quotes, both from authors, American authors. George Martin, the best lies contain within them nuggets of truth. Enough to give the listener pause. Make it just sweet enough that you can get somebody to latch onto it. The other one, the best lie is wrapped around a core of truth. Michael Scott, not from the office. <laughs> Korach was smart. Korach, unlike Michael Scott from the office, Korach was smart. His approach was ingenious. And while his accusation was built on truth, his intention was something altogether different. Do you know what Korach's true intention was? Power. Power. It's very obvious when you read it. But, uh, and, and I'm going to unashamedly borrow from one of my favorite commentaries from Rabbi Sachs of Blessed Memory. I do that a lot throughout this teaching. But what you have to know and it's not just Korach, it's so often. Korach was not interested in the people or in their holiness, or, or he was not challenged by the apparent inequality in the system. He was not opposed to having leaders over the holy nation. He just wanted to be the leader. He wanted to run the show. He wanted to have the power. Moses clarifies that and tells us in the text. Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you Levites, is it too little for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to allow you to approach him in order to perform the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the congregation and serve them? In other words, Moses is saying, you already have privilege and position. You already have some unique power. You get to be leaders in the congregation already. He has allowed you, he continues, to approach him, God, and all your brother Levites with you, yet you seek the priesthood as well? Therefore, you and all your congregation have gathered together against the Lord. What is Aaron that you rail against him, he asks. And from that question right there, we know what Korach is really after. 
He wants the high priesthood. Why are you coming at my bro, man? What has Aaron ever done? You have all this stuff. Why do you rail against Aaron? Why do you want to try to usurp Korah? This was not about equality. And because I railed on Maxine Waters last week and got in trouble, I'm not going to be political at all, but I'm going to say that these same things happen in politics every day, no matter the party, no matter what. It's almost always about power. Done. Got that out. This was not about truth. It was about Power, but skillfully masked beneath the lie of humility. Korah coming to Moses. We just want to help. You know, we have a lot to offer. We just, we just want to be a part of the team. God has made us all worthy and holy. And Moses says, you have, no, Korah says, you've gone too far, Moses. All of the congregation are holy, every one of them. So why do you exalt yourselves? Again, a reasonable question, we talked about that. And if the end point of the question was, Moses, we want to talk about this. We need some clarification. We want to have a discussion. We want to, you know, give us some revelation about what's going on. You talk face to face with God. Help us. If it had been an, a, a, a question with that endpoint in mind, we might have a different portion. We might have a different endpoint. We might have a totally different story. Were this indeed a question of equality and shared responsibility? Or, or just asking for a clarification. In other words, if this were a question and problem centered on uncovering truth and bringing some clarity and progress, fine. It had a noble purpose. It was what we would call an argument for good. Judaism is fine with arguments for good. Read the Talmud. The entire text nearly is built on back and forth argumentation for good. And it is called, in Hebrew you say, a machloket shemaim. Machloket l'shem shemaim. An argument for the sake of heaven. An argument for the sake of heaven. And in the Mishnah, in Pirkei Avot, chapter 5, we learn about this. Every dispute that is for the sake of heaven will in the end endure. Every, but one that is not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Which is the controversy that is for the sake of heaven, it asks? Such was the controversy of Hillel and Shammai. You remember Hillel and Shammai? Sages lived prior to, actually, Yeshua. Very, very active during the days of Yeshua. The houses of Hillel and Shammai convened to discuss matters of Jewish law and to discuss the measures and the, and the laws that should be laid out to best guide the people into the practice of Judaism. Hillel and Shammai. But they argued a lot about those things. Actually, not so much Hillel and Shammai, but the disciples that came after them. Sometimes very, very, very heated arguments that they had about these issues. But together, 
They legislated many new enactments. They passed new decrees in an effort to make sure that Israel not transgress the laws of the Torah that they received from Moses. That's what they were arguing about. And Pirkei Avot says that that is, for the most part, outside of those arguments, they got along. Their disciples' families married and they ate together and they did stuff. So they had these heated, heated arguments for the sake of heaven. But outside of that, they weren't involved in power struggles and these types of inane struggles. So that, the Mishnah says, is an argument for the sake of heaven. They are for the people, not for the power. And hence, in Mishnah Avot, it continues and says, okay, if Hillel and Shammai is for the sake of heaven, what is an example of a machlochet that is not for the sake of heaven? Can you guess which one they highlight? Korach. Such was the controversy of Korach and all his Ada, his congregation. In other words, there is a, this is a self-serving conflict. It is not about God. It is not about the people. It is not about equality. It is not about peace. It is about power, which interestingly brings us back to Moses. I'll ask you these couple of questions. Have you ever been ganged up on? You ever been attacked, accused, embarrassed by people? Have you ever been uh, uh, accused for things you didn't do or things that you had to do by responsibility and yet someone you know, made you look bad? Have you ever given all you had to help someone only to have them turn around and spit it in your face? Have you ever been verbally or physically slapped in the face by someone else? Have you ever been falsely accused? Has anyone ever tried to manipulate people to think a certain way about you? Has anyone ever gossiped about you to malign or destroy your reputation? Has that ever happened to anybody? You don't have to raise your hand. It's completely rhetorical. Maybe not all of those things. But Moses has experienced every single one of those things in his leadership attempt for the nation of Israel. Every one of them. And many of them are happening right here in this conflict. And you know something? I have experienced those things. Not all of them. I have been in that situation, though, more times than I would like to recall. It's hurtful. It's painful. It's infuriating. And probably everyone in here, when I ask those questions, you have at least one thing that's locked in there somewhere that you don't like to talk about or think about, but you remember it. And that is why we can understand Moses' responses here in, these, in this struggle. Fine, Korach, we'll settle this thing. In the morning, the Lord will make known who is his and who is holy and who will be allowed to approach him. The one whom he will choose, he will allow to approach him. Do this, take censers. Korach, in all your congregation, tomorrow put fire in them, lay incense on them before the Lord, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. Fine, Korach, you want to fight? God will settle it. But that's not really the end of it. Because that really wasn't the key threat that Moses faced. I said it was one of three, but there was one that particularly ticked Moses off. And it was those two dudes, Datan and Aviram. Moses, out of humility, asked them to come and talk. They refused. 
They spit in his face, the leader of all Israel, the leader of the congregation, the one who had done so many things. They said, no, we're not going. They rejected him. They destroyed his reputation publicly. They said, you're a liar, Moses. You said you were taking us into the land of milk and honey. You're a liar. You haven't taken us anywhere except out here to die. We're not coming anywhere close to you. And Moses' understandable human response, do you know what it was? That's it. Moses was angry. That's what the text says. Moses was angry. And he said to the Lord, pay no attention to their offering. I've not taken one donkey from them. I've not harmed any one of them. And Moses said, this is how you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. It has not been of my own accord. He's talking to them. If these people die a natural death or if a natural fate comes on them, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And we feel the response in our gut. When someone does that to you, when someone embarrasses you, when someone puts you down, you want to say, mm-mm, mm-mm, we're, we're about to go at it, we're about to fight. And you get angry, because you're a human being. But it is interesting, as much as we're saying, yeah, Moses, Moses, our man, go for it, tell him. Tell them. That statement from Moses, as justified as it may seem, and even with Moshe's great humility and willingness to try and diffuse, something just broke in Moses right there. Something broke because it's no longer for the sake of heaven. At this moment, when Moses said, when the text says Moses became angry, it changed. It becomes more now, on some level, about power. In essence, Moses says, hmm, we'll see. God's going to show you who's boss. And then Moses does this interesting thing in that little exchange. Moses tells God what to do. Moses got angry and he says, don't accept their prayers, God. Don't do it. And then he says, and here's what's going to happen. The ground is going to open up and swallow you because I'm in charge. I'm the one in charge. And God's going to vindicate me. Which again, it's, it's sort of understandable if God kills you, you'll know I'm supposed to be here. Now Moses and Aaron, they, they interceded for the people and God spares the larger community. But these rebels, these two, they get exactly what Moses said they were going to get in his anger. Moses says, God, don't listen to their prayers. Take them out. And God does. 
So clearly he's with Moses, right? And the punishment is deserved and the coup was rejected and Moses' authority, his power was preserved. And clearly the sages tell us that the rebellion was not for the sake of heaven because it's all about power and manipulation and lies. And Moses was only doing what had to be done, but there's an unintended consequence that just took place. While Moses was above the conflict with Korah and said... God will settle it. Now he's dragged into the conflict on a personal level. It has become about Moses on some level and Datan and Aviram. It's hard to resist. When you are backed into a corner, when you are attacked, when you are hurt, when you are angry, when you are in the middle of a conflict, it is not easy to step back and say, Hmm, I hear you. Let me think. This isn't personal. They're not, they don't mean what they're saying. Let me, let me stop. Let me think. Is this for the sake of heaven? Hmm. You want to fight. You want to attack when you're attacked. And it's almost always personal when you're having an argument or a fight or someone is coming at you. It almost always feels personal. Because it is. They're saying things about you and, or, or people that you love or what, even worse, really, people that you love when you have this, ah, I got to defend, I got to defend. And it's hard in the heat of that moment to say, now what is my intention? I'm about to take a step into this. What is my intention here? What do I hope to get out of this? How can this elevate me and God? That's usually not what we're thinking. The rules of engagement, we've all heard that. Like war has rules of engagement. Rabbi Shlomo Fari, who has a wonderful podcast weekly, talks uh, just this week, actually, about the more important strategy is not the rules of engagement. It's the strategy for disengagement. That's really an important thing to possess. Every leader must have one. As a matter of fact, every human. And that is the ability to do exactly what I just said is so hard to do, which is to stop and think before your mouth opens or before you go with what your gut is telling you to do. Because your gut is not always the best way to think. Did you know that? It's really not. I've done it a lot in my life. And man, I regret it. But the ability to stop and think, why? Why am I fighting this fight? Why do I feel this way? If you, could, if you can just get that little bit of pause into your system in a conflict to say, why do I feel this? And why are they saying it? And that's obviously hard. But you know, so much in my ministry career, so much of the, of the damage and accusation that has been attempted toward me has been by people, as my mom has always told me, hurt people hurt people. And so sometimes just being able to back up and say, why do I feel this way and why do they feel that way? What do I really know about this person? Why are they doing this? Can sometimes give you just enough pause to not go so personal. 
And Rabbi Fari talks about Moses' disengagement strategy in these conflicts with, with Korach and, you know, how he, he, I agree, I agree, on some level with Korach, he had a disengagement strategy. It was God's going to settle this with the incense and the fire pants. But I disagree with Rabbi Fari that he had a disengagement strategy with Datan and Aviram. He got sucked right in. He fully engaged. He jumped into the fray, and my goodness, I certainly would not have been able to resist myself, I'm sure. I would have been saying, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Not like Elijah Eisner, either. God's going to show you. First of all, we never get to say what God's going to show anyone else. That's one of the greatest sins imaginable. It really is. But Moses, you know, maybe, maybe God had told Moses what he was going to do. Maybe God gave him the plan. Maybe Moses knew. But that's not in the text. The only thing in the text is, oh, yeah? God, don't take their offering and the earth's going to swallow you up. I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. Try me. Try me. See what happens. God, Moses, Moses comes up with that. He, he comes up with this. The earth's going to take you out. We don't have it. And for once, the only time actually in Moses' life, we see him staking his leadership on this, on this occurrence of a miracle. By this you shall know it was the Lord who sent me to do all these things. But it's interesting if you, I'll, I'll just read that again. By this you shall know it was the Lord who sent me to do these things, that they were not of my own devising. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me, all the me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated who? The Lord with contempt, he says. Moses still has enough in there to know this isn't really about me, but it is about me. But you're treating God bad too. You're treating God bad, but you punks, you're treating me bad. And that's not going to hold. God put me in charge. Now you're going to believe it. Did Moses sin? Is this Moses sinning like Korah? No, we know that. We, we know that if he could have not been in this position, he would have probably laid it down. And God shows up and comes to his aid, and Moses' request is answered. He was not in it for himself, that's not what I'm saying. And what human wouldn't feel that need? And somewhere in the endless sea of Jewish literature, there is a, an instruction that says, when you are attacked, when your reputation is at risk, you must defend yourself. You must stand up for yourself when you are at risk of being maligned. But how you do it, for the sake of power, for the sake of heaven, for the sake of victory, for the sake of crushing your opponent, or for the sake of heaven. It is possible. If so many times we could just learn to close our mouths, to tame our tongue, to control our thoughts, to take them captive, and allow God to be our defense, which right now, if I'm sitting in your chair and I'm listening to this, I might be thinking, who is this guy kidding? 
Seriously, this is just like a preachy thing. God, let God be my defense? Come on. But it's true. It functions, God functions in that way through the Holy Spirit to give you restraint and direction and guidance. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And rather than entering the fray or taking it personal as hard as that is or demonstrating our power, all these things, it could actually still be an argument for the sake of heaven. But this is what I think is meant by those oh-so-famous words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second. And you know, one of the things that's said about that in, out, outside of uh, not so much in messianic circles is, yeah, what that is, is that's Yeshua telling you how impossible it is for you to ever be good like that and that you need him to be saved. That he's, he's showing you how impossible it would be. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, if you're like me, this is what you do. This is what you do. You resist the temptation to get into the fray. Now, that does not mean I am some victim. I'm passive. I get beat up. I get taken advantage of or slandered. We're not talking about physical abuse or criminal action. It is simply a matter of considering your response, choosing the high road. And that means giving God some room, the license to be your defender. Because here's the truth. He probably was going to open up the earth and swallow the Korach and his crew. And Moses may have known that. It doesn't matter. He was probably going to do it. But when Moses said it like he said it, it backfired. Do you know why it backfired? Because as you continue to read, after they all get sucked into the earth, down into Sheol... You read what happens next. 14,700 more people died because of that incident. It was just Datan, Aviram, Korach, the 250, their families, all sad, yeah. But 14,700 more people died. Do you know why? Because they came complaining the next day about what Moses had done about the show of power that Moses demonstrated publicly. It backfired because when he said his piece, when he told them how it was going to be, it became something different in the eyes of the people. It became more about Moses. They were not happy. Far from being repentant, they returned still complaining, not about who was going to lead them, but about the way Moses chose to end the dispute. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. Came back the next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people. You are our humble leader who... You made that happen, is what they saw or said. And here's what I wanted to borrow from Rabbi Sachs. What the entire episode shows is the destructive nature of argument, not for the sake of heaven, but for the sake of victory, which is how we almost all argue, to win.
In such a conflict, what is at stake is not truth, but power. And the result is that both sides suffer. If you win, I lose. If I win, I lose. Because I have diminished you and in turn diminished myself. Even a Moses is brought low, laying himself open to the charge that you've killed the Lord's people. Argument for the sake of power is a lose-lose scenario. And the opposite is the case when the argument is for the sake of truth. If I win, I win. But if I lose, I also win. Because being defeated by the truth is the only form of defeat that is also a victory. And it's almost as if Moses recognizes this and he intercedes. Because at the end of the day, Moses is a hero. He is always a hero. Get away from the congregation that I might consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, Moses and Aaron. They said, no, 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 no. Take your censer, put fire on it from the altar, lay incense on it, carry it quickly to the congregation, make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. This is after they came complaining, God unleashes a plague. So Aaron took it as Moses had ordered, ran into the middle of the assembly where the plague had already begun. He put incense and made atonement for the people. I love this line. He stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. They still cared, of course, but it's more than that. Something happens after this where we see Moses change, mature, become Moses again. He gives it back to God because the argument ultimately the argument of Korach and Datan and Aviram and the 250 and everybody else is ultimately settled by God. If you conclude the story, Moses says, take 12 staffs, put the names of the people on them. You remember this? Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. From there... For there shall be one staff for the head of each ancestral house. Place them in the tent of meeting before the covenant where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus, I will put a stop to the complaints of the Israelites that they continually make against you. When Moses removed himself from the situation, so to speak, when he gave it to God, when his demonstration of power had not stopped the complaints, as a matter of fact, it had caused more damage. God settles the argument. I will put a stop to the complaints of the Israelites that they continually make against you. Not with fire and brimstone, not with a display of massive power, but with a flower and an almond. That's how God showed up and settled it. When Moses went into the tent of the covenant on the next day, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted. It put forth buds, produced blossoms, bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to the Israelites, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the covenant to be kept as a warning to rebels, so that you may make an end of their complaints against me, or else they will die. Moses did it, just as the Lord had commanded him. Now, the interesting thing is none of the complaints really did stop, so I'm not exactly sure how that works. But the point is, listen to that. In the end, the complaints were against God. They were against God. And Moses 
had defended God for himself, but he also felt that, that almost irresistible need to defend himself. It's natural. It's needed sometimes. And there are a lot of mean people out there who are not arguing for the sake of heaven. That much I know. And sometimes we have to defend. There is a time for that. But here's the point. Know your purpose. Be the high road walker. Know your purpose. Understand what's at stake. Know what's driving the argument. In the heat of it, seek it out. Stop and think before you blow your stack and create irreversible damage in a relationship or an environment. As Rabbi Fari mentions, have a strategy of disengagement. Try not to let it be personal. And above all, as much as it depends on you, make every argument not like Korach, but like Hillel and Shammai, for the sake of the people and for the sake of God and for the sake of heaven. Therein lies a key to happiness in your life. Which is why you come here on Saturday for me to tell you how to be happy, right? Not. Shabbat Shalom. Let's stand together.